0: Alright, Genesis chapter 38 is where we're at tonight. Genesis chapter 37, we noticed last time together, basically begins the the record of the life of this last sort of patriarch that we get uh, in uh, the book of Genesis. We looked at Abraham, then of course things transferred to his son Isaac, and then Jacob, of course, who has the twelve sons, which become the twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, and then really gaining more press than anybody else in the book of Genesis we then have the life set before us of this man Joseph one of the sons of uh, Jacob's 12 sons and and Joseph again gets more print some uh, 25% of the book of Genesis, dedicated to the life of Joseph, and really from chapter 37 all the way through 50, it's primarily a record of Joseph and uh, his life, a a man of stellar character, as we'll see as you just read through, if you kind of seek to have, by the Spirit of God's grace and enablement, just sort of the lens of Christ, you see how many ways you can look at Joseph's life, and you can see a lot of typologies, the, the pictures of Jesus Christ that are reflected in the life of Joseph, as well as just the incredible... Uh, character and uh, sort of stellar quality that this man had in his relationship with the Lord. And we saw last time how the Lord had put these sort of dreams into Joseph's heart, uh, that God had placed things inside of this young man who, again, uh, remember, seemed to sort of be the favored son of his father, Jacob. And that caused tension in the family life. He was one of the younger brothers But yet I think Jacob just saw something uh, in young Joseph, he saw something in his heart, he saw a tenderness towards the Lord, and and God began to deposit things into Joseph's life. God began to put dreams into this young man's life, only uh, a teenager at that time, and just allowing him to be able to sense the call of God upon his life, that God was seeming to indicate to him through a series of dreams that, He had a plan for him one day to be in a place of authority, that he would be in a place of rulership and so forth. And his brothers despised this. Uh, They recognized that the Lord had been promoting him in a sense among the ranks even of the family business. And ultimately because of that we saw that they threw him into a pit and were intending to kill him. But ultimately Judah uh, had talked the brothers into just selling him off uh, to a band of Ishmaelite traders. Uh, who then took him, and ultimately, we saw at the end of the chapter, it uh, says that those uh, Midianites then sold him down in Egypt to a man named Potiphar, uh, who was an officer uh, of Pharaoh and the captain of Pharaoh's guard. So he makes his way down to Egypt. Again, God sovereignly directing him there, because ultimately, many, many years later, that's exactly where God needs him to be. And you have this incredible blend really, of the circumstances of everyday life and the natural affairs and experiences that we go through. And in Joseph's life, a lot of difficult things, a lot of hurtful things, mistreatment, uh, tremendous unfair things done in his life to him by his family. But yet at the same time, you have God superintending over his life and over every circumstance that happens. And again, Psalm 105 literally tells us that he ends up in Egypt because God sent him there uh, by the word of the Lord he was tested and God literally is is seeking to get Joseph to the destination to be in the right place at the right time that he needs to be really because in essence he then becomes the savior uh, for the Jewish race when a famine strikes the land and they go there and he's in the right place at the right time where God needs him to be in order to fulfill God's purposes and plans. And it's just a tremendous reminder for us that uh, you know, we can go through horrendous things in our lives. You know, maybe some of you in this room, you've gone through very painful things, hurtful things, you know, things that have been done to you by your family or by people. And and we go through things and we think, why, God, did this ever happen? But to realize that though that is a part of living in our fallen world and those things happen, and not necessarily to say that God causes those things, but the amazing thing is, is that God can use all those things and God has a way of superintending and orchestrating and pulling strings to make everything Ephesians 1 says to work together according to the counsel of his will. And that was the case with the life of Joseph. So Joseph now gets transferred. Uh, The brothers go back. They tell Jacob, remember, they took his garment and they put animal blood on it. And they say, look, is this your sons? And, And Jacob now, his father, is left mourning. He thinks Joseph is dead. The brothers think, okay, we've gotten rid of him, we didn't kill him, we don't have to feel guilty about that, but we sold him off, he'll be down in a foreign land hundreds of miles, we'll never see this dreamer again who we can't stand anyway, and dad thinks he's dead, and they think they've washed their hands of him, which for the next 13 or so years, that's the, the case until ultimately God uh, brings the family reunion back around, but we leave off with that, and then if you've read ahead, you've noticed that chapter 38 is kind of almost this very, and I'll use the term, I think it's fair enough, bizarre parenthetical chapter that then shows up here in the book of Genesis. Because chapter 37 through 50, the focus is predominantly all on Joseph. And in chapter 38, it has really... In a lot of ways, nothing at all, it seems to do with Joseph's life. And then it's almost as if, how does that fit in there chronologically? Chapter 37, we're tracking along, we're reading the story of his life. He ends up down, the end of verse, chapter 37, it tells us that you know Joseph was sold down into Egypt as a slave. And then chapter 39, verse 1, it just picks up right there with Joseph in Potiphar's house. And it's almost as like, Again, and we know the Word of God is inspired. It's profitable. It's inerrant. There's nothing. But in our finite, I find myself as maybe you do sometimes. When you read the Bible, Lord. What does that chapter have to really, in essence, do with the flow of things chronologically? And and why would it end up being there? And it's almost as like this brief parenthetical, uh, you know, chapter, almost this interruption that really seems to have no connection. ...to what then begins to happen. My best uh, stab at the possibility of why the Spirit of God recorded this for us is twofold. Number one, you'll see when we get to Genesis chapter 39... ...that it is a chapter that clearly reveals the impeccable moral character that Joseph has. As he resists incredible sexual temptation and esteems his moral purity before God... And chooses to do what is right and righteous rather than succumb to his own selfish desires to gratify himself. Though it's spread before him on a golden platter, the opportunity to gratify himself sexually, Joseph chooses to refrain from that. And he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So in some senses, potentially... It's set before us as a contrast to allow us to realize, hey, we can live this way selfishly and ungodly because we'll see chapter 38. It's a very sordid chapter with very unfortunate sexually immoral activity going on within it. Uh, and then chapter 39 is a tremendous contrast of that showing us both are possible. It is possible to overcome any temptation, the Bible says. No temptation has seized you, seized me, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, except such as common to man. And it says, and God is faithful. He will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we're evil. But with the temptation, he always provides the way of escape so that we can bear up under it. And whether that be in the arena of, again, sexual temptation, or whether that be lying, or whether that be cheating, or stealing, or whatever it may be. It's a passage that shows that temptation can be overcome. It can be overcome in our lives. And potentially these two are set next to each other to, to show us a contrast. At times the Bible does do that. One other reason I would state is this, is chapter 38, another reason it has importance is because it follows the line of Messiah. Because we know that Jesus not only came through the Jewish line, but he also came through the family line of the tribe of Judah. And we certainly, in the Bible, always want to follow the line. That's what the Bible is concerned about, not the genealogy of everyone, but it's always concerned about the genealogy of Jesus. And Judah was the family line, the tribe through which Jesus, the Messianic line, ultimately comes. And potentially, again, Matthew chapter 1, as it records for us the genealogy of Jesus, includes the fact that uh, Jesus was from Judah and also that he was from Perez, which you'll see at the end of the chapter, uh, and, and through the mother Tamar. And again, Potentially, again, as that genealogy is recorded in the New Testament of the the genealogy of Jesus and where his line came from, it shows us incredibly that God is extremely gracious because you have a very imperfect set of human beings who ultimately God orchestrates his perfect, wonderful plan through to ultimately bring about Jesus Christ in this world. And Tamar and Perez end up in that line. And when you read the story, you go, oh my goodness, that's, that's kind of, almost kind of embarrassing uh, what took place. But, you know, quite honestly, let's be very candid, uh, even the body of Christ today is pretty messy. Uh, the body of Christ is, is pretty messed up. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think it's the best thing going. <laughs> I'd much rather be with a family of God than uh, uh, be living, you know, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere out in the world. Uh, but nonetheless, the body of Christ is a family. Uh, and there's a bunch of sinners saved by grace who can sometimes be a little uh, selfish and hypocritical and have our own you know issues and idiosyncrasies. sometimes the body of Christ is pretty messy, but it 's amazing how God can still accomplish by his grace his good works, his purposes, and his plans, despite the the messes that we kind of make sometimes that God says, yeah love 's going to have to cover a multitude of sins in that one but uh <laughs> but but i 'm still going to fulfill my plan, and i 'm still going to get Jesus." Preached, And I'm still going to reach people and, and see them get saved. And uh, again, uh, potentially that's another reason as, again, you'll see these same names showing up in Matthew's gospel in the line of Christ. So uh, that being said, look with me at the beginning of chapter 38. Verse 1, and you'll, as I said, very quickly begin to see that this is a a very sordid and uh, kind of awkward, raw, and honest chapter in the Bible. God does not hide the flaws of his people uh, by any means. The Bible is an honest book. Chapter Mm -hmm. 38, verse 1 says, It came to pass at that time uh, that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. So Judah, remember, it was his idea, chapter 37, verse 26, it was Judah's idea to sell off Joseph, their brother. And they followed through with that plan. They sold him off to the Ishmaelite traders who took him down to Egypt. Like anybody else, potentially, Judah, they've gone back home now. They've told this horrific lie to their father. He's grieving. He thinks his son is dead. And as Judah's around for a while, like anybody else, I'm sure his conscience, like all the brothers, is probably grating on him. And maybe to another level, because this whole sell your brother off to a foreign band of traitors and get rid of him and lie to dad, uh, he was kind of the pioneer in that whole lie and deception and what they ultimately did, because it was his suggestion. Let's not kill him, let's just sell him, and then we won't have to feel guilty he's dead We'll just get rid of him once for all. So, again, maybe his conscience is grating on him. Guilt is wrestling with inside of him. So it, it comes to a place where, what do people do a lot of times when they're guilty? They try and run away from their guilt. They try and run away anything that reminds them of the reality of their guilt or to try and force them to have to confront and deal with their guilt. So maybe he says, you know what, gosh, you know, being around my brothers and around the homestead and around dad and he's grieving and... Uh, so he just says, i got to get out of here. And he thinks, like lots of people do, if they just keep running and they just keep escaping and they keep just departing and getting away from the thing that testifies to them that there's guilt in their life, that somehow that will appease their conscience. Which, remember, that never works. That, that never, ever works. The only thing that works for guilt is the departure of sin from our life and ultimately confessing our errors Oh, how happy is the man whose transgressions are forgiven? David says. You know, it's only once our sin departs from us that then the guilt complex really works itself out of our system. But again, probably wrestling, maybe no doubt. So he says, "I've got to get away from the family." He departs now. He goes to another area for whatever, uh, of, again, possible underlying reasons. He, he meets a man named Hira. Uh, who was an Adullamite, the Bible says. In verse 2 says, Judah saw there among that people group. And this is about, only really about 8 to 10 miles from where they lived at. It's just uh, separating himself from the family in a, a district not too far from where they lived. It says, he saw there a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her and went into her. So he now takes to himself a pagan wife. Always a problem. When you're a child of God, with the plan of God and the call of God on your life, and you think, "But you know what? Uh, I'm into evangelistic dating or evangelistic marriage. Yeah, I'll just, I'll win this person and I'll talk to them about my God. And through dating, I'll share the God." It never works. I could present to you 15 people who would gladly tell someone who's into evangelistic dating or evangelistic marriage. Trust me, it doesn't work on the other side. You'll then live with the struggles of that. Down the road, long term, but Judah here again, knowing that he shouldn't have for whatever reasons, he finds a Canaanite woman he wants to be married, so it says he marries, and the Holy Spirit's very clear a canaanite woman he he, he marries a, a woman with pagan practices, idolatrous worship in her life, she 's not a follower of God, and obviously you begin to see the byproduct in her family has a tremendous effect because the- the kids uh, gravitate towards mom Can, mom's Canaanite tendencies and pagan practices uh, and and Judah's desires or ambitions in any way to live for jehovah god don't seem to have any effect on the family instead they gravitate towards the ungodliness and that's always the case i'll tell you that too that always is the case kids will always gravitate towards the ungodliness rather than godliness because it's the sinful tendency inside of us well look what begins to happen in his home life he gets married And they begin to conceive and have children. Verse 3 says, so that she conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur, the firstborn. And then she conceived again and bore a son and they called his name Onan. And then they conceived yet again a third time and bore a third son and called his name Shelah. And he was at Chezib, it says, when she bore him. Verse 6, apparently some time passes. They've had these three sons now. And Judah then, uh, as a father would, took a wife for his son Ur, his firstborn son. And the wife's name that he took for his son Ur was Tamar. Verse 7 says, But Ur, Judah's firstborn, notice, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Now, no explanation there. That's pretty blunt and to the point. Again, what I read of the Bible, God is slow to anger He's abounding in love. God is incredibly patient. So, exactly what the measure of this young man's wickedness was, again, I say young man, he's married at this point, but exactly what the nature of what he was doing and what, you know, his level of wickedness was, we're not told. The Bible simply directly says that he was so wicked in the sight of the Lord that God allowed him to die. That that the Lord allowed him to perish. It literally says that God was involved in it, that the Lord killed him. Uh, what exactly he was doing, we don't know, but we know God's a gracious God, and you've got to be pretty, uh, in a sense, in, entrenched in wickedness for God to respond that way in his sovereignty. Well, verse 8, notice here's how the saga begins to unfold now. Judah, seeing his eldest son has now died, leaving a widow, Tamar, Judah said to Onan, the secondborn son, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. Now, this is what was called in that day among the ancient culture, the law of the Leverite or Leverite marriage, which basically comes from a term which means uh, a brother-in-law. And what the law of the Leverite was, it was practiced in that culture. You'll see it's later on codified even in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy chapter five and other places. There's further explanation, and basically, what the law of the Levite was that uh, if a uh, a man was married to a woman and died somehow before he was able to give birth to a son, which was essential to a carry on the name and b to receive the inheritance so that the family's inheritance would stay within the family rather than go elsewhere, as well as to carry on the name. Uh, what the Law of the Leverite was that then the, the next closest blood relative, who was not married, uh, as a sense of honor and duty to the family and to the deceased brother, was then in an honor-bound way to be willing to deny himself to marry his dead brother's widow and the first son that they had together, in a sense, was considered not his own son, but the dead brother's son, to perpetuate the brother's name and to keep the inheritance within a line, as well as that first son was also to be considered the deceased brother's son, because that firstborn son would then be able to raise up and be able to take care of his mother, because in that day, widowhood was extremely dangerous for survival. So that firstborn son, was to be you know, given birth to, and, but it wasn't to be considered their son. It was to be considered the brother's son, even though he had perished. And this was a law that was practiced in that day among the ancient culture, even in this time, as well as, again, something God later codifies, even in the Mosaic law. There were ways that you could opt out of it, and that's what Deuteronomy 25 describes, but it was a common practice in that day to do an honorable thing among the family. I would say this. Would you agree? Can you imagine how much... More families were probably involved in the considerations of who married who you know especially among brothers you know I'm, I'm, I have two other brothers I know I you think about marrying who <laughs> let's talk about this again you know look, let me buy you dinner let's discuss this a little more you know uh, you know if your elder brother was the first one getting married you can guarantee you know in ways probably that today family is just whatever you know just your life do what you want families were involved and quite honestly let me say this i think that was probably a very healthy thing Because there probably was a measure of more stewardship and a greater sense of seriousness and sobriety about, hey, you're going to bring that person into our family. Uh, And and there's going to be a tremendous link that we're going to have. And and I'm sure it probably really solidified uh, the value of a lot of marriages in a lot of ways. So there was this practice. and, And Judah, now as the father, is telling Onan, look. Your brother has died. Go into your brother's wife, verse 8, and marry her. Do the right thing. Raise up an heir. that Have a son. That first son will will be for your brother. Verse 9, but Onan knew, notice, that the heir would not be his, indicating he was aware that, in a selfish sense, I'm going to give birth to a son. I'm going to have to raise him, feed him, take care of him, and he's not even going to be my son. I'm not interested in it. So it says he knew the heir wouldn't be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife, and the idea is for uh, physical intimacy, sexual consummation. When he went into his brother's wife, verse 9 says that he omitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, and therefore he killed him also. Now, the tense of the language seems to indicate that this was not a one-time thing, but a repetitive thing, that he entered into this relationship. He continually was having sexual relations with his brother's widow in the sense of, okay, I'll fulfill this Leverite practice. And he continually went in, and she was availing himself, or herself to him with the intention of... In an honorable way, yes, raise up an heir for me so that my husband's name will be perpetuated, we won't lose our family inheritance, and that son can help take care of me in my widowhood. However, he had absolutely no intention on doing the right and noble thing because it says that every time that they were together sexually that he would emit on the ground so that she would not conceive because for his selfish reasons he did not want to raise up an heir. And God, being so displeased with this, it says verse 10, actually took his life. God killed him. Now, there are people who try and look at this passage of scripture and try and hold it up with incredible zeal as a passage that indicates and shows look there you go see God is totally opposed to birth control and he's so opposed to birth control that this guy instead of you know uh, you know emitting into the woman who he's being sexually intimate with instead was, you know, pulling out and emitting on the ground so that she wouldn't conceive and she wouldn't get pregnant to have a child. So there you go. Any form of birth control, God highly despises it. He's so displeased that he killed somebody over that thing. Let me just say this. I think that is an extreme out-of-balance stretch. And quite honestly, I think you're really torturing the text to try and use it as a proof text uh, because of maybe some strong conviction that you have about something. And that's the only passage I think you could even get close, remotely close, to try, and, to try and say that with. And to me, that is you can torture any text hard enough to get it to confess to whatever you want. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that's the furthest thing in any way from what God was trying to convey here. What God was highly displeased with, bottom line, was simply this. Is that this man, for his own selfish gratification, was using his brother's wife... ...for sexual fulfillment with no intention of doing the honorable thing... ...which he was supposed to marry her for and to have sexual relationship with her for. The only thing he was doing was utilizing Tamar for his own sexual gratification. And he was just using her for his own sexual fulfillment. And he had no respect for her, no regard for her, and and did not value her in any way... ...and he's in a vulnerable way in her condition taking advantage of her using her for the fulfillment of his own selfish gratification alone. And God watches this perpetually, and God dealt with that very severely. To me, you're free to believe what you want, that's what I see God being very displeased with, that God's looking at something that's a beautiful gift created for a man and woman in marriage, something that is designed to be expressed in a healthy, proper way, and not for somebody to use and just take advantage of somebody else for the sole purpose of, I don't care about you an ounce, but i want to use you period for my own gratification for my own personal pleasures and preferences and and god god's very severe about that and to me that's what i think the bible is setting before us here that god had great displeasure with that going on because you notice it says he knew the air wouldn't be his uh, that was, wasn't what he was interested in but he was utilizing in a very rude and harsh way The opportunity to have sexual relations with Tamar. Verse 11 says, And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter in law, so the father in law speaks to her and says, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. So the first husbands died. (laughs) Unfortunately, Onan, who seems to be just as wicked as his older brother Ur, who it tells us God had to eliminate, uh, both sons are, are pretty wicked. They've both died now. It seems that Sheila, the third son, is quite a bit younger because he says, remain a widow in your father's house until Sheila is grown. The idea being that he's not ready yet to enter into marriage. Uh, so he's trying to fulfill the obligation he feels as a father-in-law to grant the next son. But verse 11, notice in uh, his heart, Judah's heart, It seems he's got a little bit of questioning because it says, for he said, lest he die like his brothers also. In other words, he's thinking to himself, look, I already lost two sons married to this woman. So maybe there's a little more than meets the eye here. So he says, go home, stay a widow. When Sheila's old enough, then I'll give him to you as your husband. And he'll fulfill the law of Leverite and raise up a seed for our family to perpetuate our name But he's thinking, you know, I don't know, I'm just trying to create distance. Maybe if I create enough distance, this gal will just stay away from the family, uh, and I won't lose the third of my last three sons. As you can see, that's his mentality. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now in the process of time, verse 12, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, and his... Friend Hira the Adulamite. So time goes by, and now Judah's wife dies, uh, and he now is a widow himself. It seems a number of years have passed. Sheila has grown up, and it seems that he's not giving this third son in marriage. And it becomes sheep-shearing time, and it says that, that he goes up and visits his friend Hira the Adulamite, who he met a long time ago in this territory. And again, keep in mind, sheep-shearing time was kind of like harvest time for those who would work the fields and so forth. When you would shear the sheep, that was the time of like, great celebration. You know, you're bringing in your prophets, and so it involved obviously you know, festivity and drinking, and it was a celebration time. It was also a time of kind of rejoicing and you know, sort of the, the fertility, of of what we've done we've been profitable and so forth so probably maybe very well likely you have hired the adulamate again he's just lost his wife listen Judah I know you've been through a tough time it's sheep shearing time let's go up you know to the area of Timnah we'll get your mind off of things you're grieving the loss of your wife you know what it's like when we shear the sheep and so let's go up and get your mind off things and and trying to help comfort them in a sense with the way that many times pagan friends do in unhealthy ways, as we'll ultimately see. So verse 13 says, It was told Tamar, who's been waiting as a widow, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in the open place which is on the way to Timna. So she takes off her uh, garments of mourning, which indicated she was a widow, and in essence she puts on the garments now of what would be typical of a harlot or a prostitute. She puts on a different garment to veil herself, the attire of a harlot, and she goes down to the open area, which is where harlots would wait in a city uh, to, in a sense, be propositioned. Because she hears her father-in-law is coming. look at verse 14 parentheses it says, "For she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. So what's happening now? Because Judah's not giving this third son in marriage, she now decides, you know what? I've got to do I've got to raise up a seed for this family. It's the right thing to do. So she now determines, well, if he's not going to take care of it, I'll take matters into my own hand. I know one person that's still in the family line, my father-in-law. He's still of the line of Judah, and he's a widow now too. So now he doesn't have a wife anymore, so if he won't give the third son to me, he's now a widow, then potentially I'll have to somehow conceive and raise up an heir through my father. So she starts now plotting and scheming in an unfortunate way in her own mind. Verse 15 says, when Judah saw her, again, she's veiled, as harlots would veil their face, again, because it was a, in any culture, there's still a sense of, if you're going to act as a harlot or a prostitute, there was a sense of dignity. It was embarrassing. So they would veil themselves. I mean, today, people don't even veil themselves. They just put on makeup and don't care. But in that culture, they would veil themselves in a sense so it was less awkward as the harlotry or prostitution was actually taking place. So verse 15 says that when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. And then he turned to her by the way and said, please... Let me come in to you. So in essence, he propositions her. He says, are you for hire? Uh, For he did not know that this was his daughter-in-law. So she said, well, uh, what will you give me? What's the price? He propositions her as a harlot. She says, what's the price you're willing to pay that you may come in to me, verse 16. And he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock, and she said, well, in the meantime, what will you give me as a pledge till you send it? You know, you don't have the young goat now. Again, they weren't gonna pay in currency, so he says, here's what I'll pay. I'll I'll give you an animal from my flock, and she says, well, how do I know that you're not gonna rip me off and just use me and never send payment? Give me some kind of a pledge to know that you're sincere about making payment uh, for what will take place between us. So she says, what kind of pledge till you send me the animal, the payment, And he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, well, how about your signet and cord? The signet ring was sort of the family identity ring to mark your family line and kind of identify like an initial ring in a sense as we would think of today. It would mark their property in the wax with a signet ring to identify. Give me your signet ring and a cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. So now she's impregnated. By her father in law, Judah. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil, put back on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. So after things are over, they go their separate ways. Judah turns to his friend and says, Hey, you know what? I want to have integrity. I said I'd pay this woman for what took place between us. You know, I don't want to go back into town. Somebody see me with a harlot. I got a reputation. I'm Judah. You know, I'm a man of God. So I don't want to, be, I don't want to go back. I already been with a harlot, so we got to cover that. So I'll tell you what. I, will you go up there, bring the goat, find this woman, pay her for me, so I can kind of save face here? So he sends his friend to go up and bring the animal, but lo and behold, he can't find this harlot sitting in the open square. Why? Because she went home, and put back on her widow garments. So. He can't find her, and he asks around the men of the place, saying, Where is the harlot who is openly by the roadside? And they said, "Uh, There's no harlot in this place. Uh, We don't know what you're talking about. There's no harlot that sits in the open area here. So he returned to Judah and said, Look, I can't find her. Also, the men of the place there said there was no harlot in this place. So Judah said, Well, uh, let her take them for herself, Notice, lest we be shamed, For I sent the young goat, and you haven't found her. In other words, you know what, let's just just let this go. Rather than us make a bigger deal out of it, we tried to do the right thing, we tried to pay her, you couldn't find her. Rather than be exposed, don't anybody know what we did, rather than be exposed for the thing that we did wrong, let's just keep it under wraps, whatever, let's just consider it a wash, we couldn't find her, Uh, let's just be done with it, lest we be shamed. Again, what's he trying to do? He's trying to cover his sin. God never lets that work. The Bible tells us that he who covers his sins in Proverbs says doesn't prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them receives mercy. And God will never let us. He loves us too much, and especially if you're his kid. If you belong to him, you can guarantee you will get away with nothing. I can't tell you what the time frame will be, but it's better to blow the horn as soon as it happens. You fall into sexual morality, blow the horn right away. Did you do something you know you shouldn't have done? Blow the horn right away. Because ultimately, if not, God's going to blow the horn because he loves you too much to let that go in your life. And the father disciplines the child that he loves. And it's way more painful, embarrassing, and difficult when God has to sovereignly take over and blow the horn and expose our error than when we do it ourselves. But he's trying to hide. Okay, let's just let this go. We don't want to be shamed. Well, verse 24, look, God's true to his ways. It came to pass, about three months after everything happened, that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law... Check this story out. Hey, Judah, did you know your daughter-in-law, Tamar? She's played the harlot. Furthermore, she's with a child through her harlotry or prostitution. She's even pregnant now. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, isn't it amazing... Is it? I mean, you want to talk about the epitome of hypocrisy? She's what? My daughter-in-law went out and prostituted herself, and she's pregnant as the result of her harlotry and prostitution? That put the stakes in the city square, and they didn't, you know, when somebody was put to death or burned for adultery, I mean, it was a public show. Get the stake, somebody go, you can just hear him, somebody go get the fire, get the wood, drag her down to the city square, let's burn her at the stake. I mean, isn't it amazing how bad your sin looks on other people? Again, this is his own sin. But isn't it amazing? Look at the strong response. Isn't it amazing how when somebody else is doing the very thing that you yourself or I myself am guilty of, how bad our sin looks on other people, how strong our reaction is towards other people who do the same thing that we do or who have done the same thing that we have done. I'll tell you something. Sometimes it's a very good indication when you see somebody respond very strongly towards someone's sin or towards people who are doing something wrong. Sometimes to me, there's an eerie bit of revelation in that when somebody feels so strong. I can't believe those people do that. And they, A lot of times it's because there's something nagging in their conscience that they're so sensitive to that area that somehow they just have a very strong reaction to that thing. And it is truly amazing how utterly hypocritical we can be and how bad – when we do it, oh, I slipped. I just – oh, I can't believe you. I just – I do slipped. But when somebody else does it, burn them at the stake. Burn that Christian at the stake. I can't believe they would do that and just – amazing to see this played out in humanity here. So he says, bring her out, let her be burned. Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, imagine this, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. So she sends out that cord and that staff and the what? The, the signet ring. The, the the very like, you know, ID ring with his initials in a sense on it. And she says, go to my father-in-law and say, look, you know what? I, I want to confess. It's, I want to indict the man who's respo- the responsible party for my child and this pregnancy. And, and, and if I'm going to be burned at the stake, w- we'd like to go down together. <laughs> <laughs> you know, our burning love. We just we want we want to go up and smoke together. You know, burn. so she says. Bring these to my father-in-law. She says, and tell him to the man whom these belong. I'm with child, and. She said, please, determine who these are, this signet, oh gosh, and cord and staff. Verse 26, so Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her notice. He realizes his error. It perpetuated what happened. Again, not saying what Tamar did was right, but he says, because I did not give to her Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. Again, ultimately, he realized, oh man, shame of face on me. And sadly, on top of being exposed, and again, God will always bring it out, it totally ravaged the relationship. It says he never knew her again. It was so damaging, the complete relationship was destroyed. It says he never knew her again. He parted company, probably could never look her in the face again. And it totally destroyed the family relationship. And man, sin has a way of doing that. Literally, it just says that Not only did this happen, but they just—they never knew each other ever again. They parted company, and there was never any family relationship anymore. Because, again, of selfish and deceptive actions and how destructive they can be in families. Well, verse 27 says, It came to pass at the time then that she was giving birth from this pregnancy that, behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was, when she was giving birth, that the one who put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Again, take notice, they're they're very serious about the firstborn in this culture. So, twins are in her body, somehow an arm pops out before anything else, so, wait, we got to make sure it's a firstborn, we can't see his face. So they they tie a uh, scarlet thread uh, around the wrist of the child, because they were so emphatic about the firstborn in that culture, it matters so much. So they hurry up tie a cord around to make sure, since they can't see the face, who the firstborn is. And she says, this one came out first, and then it happened. He drew his hand back. Imagine that, poor mom. And his brother came out unexpectedly. You know, they, they, they switched, and the other one came out first. And she said, how did you break through? <laughs> it's a good way to get a name, right? So the breach, this breach be upon you, therefore they called his name Breakthrough. Or Perez, basically. In an interesting way, it makes you wonder how some of us got our names, ultimately. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And again, so the two sons are born, again, through Judah's line with his daughter-in-law, and it's Perez, you read Matthew chapter 1, who ultimately then becomes the son uh, that follows continually the messianic line. Uh, but again, what a Would you agree? What a messy, dysfunctional situation. But again, despite, again, the sins, the failures, the shortcomings of people, what a tremendous reminder that despite all of our imperfections and inconsistencies, God still gets his work done, man. It's amazing, the grace of God, and how God can, with his grace, still... Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more, and He can still fulfill His purposes. And you know, just that should be an tremendous consolation because, you know, oh, but I've done this and I've done that, or I've experienced this. Listen, there's no perfect family, there's no perfect person, and the Lord uses imperfect people, and He can still fulfill His purposes and accomplish His plans. Well, let's look a few verses in the chapter 30, 39 here before we close. We come back now to the life of Joseph, and it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Interesting, Judah went where he wanted to, but Joseph had been taken down. Again, the God was sovereignly superintending over this young man's life. He's taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard in Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So Joseph, this, again, the 17-year-old young man, God's began to work in his life, put these dreams and desires in his heart. He's, you know, thrust away from his family, and he's thinking to himself, God, here I am down in this farm. What about these dreams? And what about these things that you put into my heart? And now he's taken away. He's brought down to Egypt. He finds himself probably on like a slave trader's block, and they're they're looking at this 17-year-old man. They're checking on his teeth and look, you know, just checking everything about him. And eventually, this man Potiphar, who's a man of position, says, you know what, I'll, I'll take that young man. And he puts down the price. Potiphar purchased him now as a household slave. And Potiphar, it says, is the captain of the guard and an officer of Pharaoh, which indicates that he had a position, captain of the guard, officer of Pharaoh. Potiphar, if you can kind of envision, he was kind of like the... Uh, I guess you want to say kind of like the chief of staff among Pharaoh's secret service. He was somebody who was kind of in charge of the security forces of Pharaoh. He was somebody who would be responsible for executing prisoners and taking care of kind of the secret service uh, security forces of, of Pharaoh in that day. So a man of tremendous power, tremendous authority, which really is something to remember because when the whole you know craziest shenanigans go on further in this chapter, and... Potiphar's wife makes advancements towards Joseph, and then Joseph, you know the story, most of us may have to do it, we're familiar with it, he resists her sexual advances, and then she, as a woman scorned, says, he came on to me, this rotten slave, and so forth, and what you'll see happen is is when Potiphar comes into the scene, and he's incensed and he's angry. He puts Joseph in prison, and it literally tells us, that, he, verse 20, that he put him where the king's prisoners were confined. Because that's the realm. He, he didn't put him where the common criminals were. He put him in the king's prison. I point this out, and I know I'm jumping way ahead. What about the first 20 verses? For this very simple reason. Adultery was a very serious crime. And especially if you're going to try and commit adultery with a high-ranking official in Pharaoh's governmental services... Do you know what Joseph should have been when he got accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife? <coughs> Anybody else would have been dead. He would have been executed instantaneously. You just tried to rape the Secret Service chief of staff's wife, and all you do is get tossed no, you no way. This guy was in charge of executions. That was a serious violation. I think, and you'll see these next couple of verses indicated that that truly what happened is when Potiphar came on the scene, he's incensed because he probably knew that his wife tended to have a promiscuous type attitude, and he knew Joseph was totally innocent, and his anger was mainly directed towards his wife, and he says, now i got to save face, and i got to do something with this guy. So he sticks him in prison because he knows the guy has integrity because his reputation is spoken for his character, and character is what counts in the long haul. So he sticks him in the king's prison, he wants to preserve his life and again you just have God superintending over the whole thing but here here's this man Potiphar he takes Joseph into his home now as a family slave and look at verse two it says and the Lord was with Joseph again this guy's gone through a lot of stuff and he's going to continue to go through a lot of stuff but notice the key I have it boxed out in my Bible those four words the Lord was with Joseph that was the key Joseph, you never see him complaining, you never see him saying, you know what, forget it. Why would I serve you, God? You're going to let me go through all these things? I and mean, the guy gets tossed in prison, falsely accused, I mean, a dysfunctional. But somehow Joseph was always conscious, you know what, but God's still with me. And if God wants me in prison, God will be with me in prison. And wherever I'm at, the Lord is still with me. And the fact that the Lord was with Joseph and he was conscious of the presence of God in his life was the thing, I think, that gave him stability despite the struggles and hard things he went through. And really, that was the thing that made him such a successful, prosperous man. It wasn't anything special about Joseph. It was that the Lord was with Joseph. Listen, there ain't nothing special about anybody. I love what Paul says in the Corinthians when he says, Look, why do you, you know, boast as if somehow the things that you have that, that you didn't receive them? You know, there's nothing special about anybody. You know, I hope that you're not really that impressed with any human being. We really shouldn't be. Because it's only the presence of the Lord with people that allows people to, in a sense, have any favor or blessing or success in our lives. And that was Joseph. God's hand was on him, yes. Yes. But that was the key. And you'll notice in these chapters, that's the emphasis the Holy Spirit keeps setting before us. And really that's what made Joseph the man he was. The Lord was with him, notice verse 2, and he was a successful man. Why? Because the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him, he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hands. So as he worked... For Potiphar, as his employer, Potiphar realized, you know what, there's something different about this guy. He's not like all my other employees. And it's not just that he has integrity and character, he always attributes it to his God. And, and, and the thing that makes him who he is, I re- it's because he has the relate this relationship with God. And interesting, his pagan, ungodly employer recognized and could distinguish the thing that makes this man the way that he is, is God is with him. And it says literally that notice, verse 3 says that his master took notice that the Lord made all he did to prosper. So he thought to himself, you know, I need more guys like this. You know, Whoever his God is that he serves, the truth of the matter is uh, this guy serving his God benefits me. And can I tell you something? Our relationship with God should make us... Stand out among other workers and employees, or people that we, that people should say, you know what? Not and, and I, this saddens me. And I've heard this before. You know, I, I worked in the secular culture for many years before when, when the Lord allowed me to be in full time ministry, and it would break my heart. People would say, "Oh, these stinking Christians, you know, are doing this or they're doing that." Or that you know, they're supposed to be working and they're witnessing. Instead of the fact that our greatest testimony is the fact that. We're diligent and we have integrity and we're honest and we're hard workers and we're ethical. That's, this is the way it should be, where employers say, you know what, those are the kind of people I want in my company. People who know God and have a relationship with God. And here, Potiphar recognizes, wow, uh, this God thing makes my life better. And you know what, that's the way it should be. If, if you're married to an unbeliever, your husband, your unsaved wife, your unsaved husband should say, you know what, this God thing makes my life better. Not worse. If you have an unsaved boss, your boss, hey, this God thing makes this employee better. Not worse. And here, Potiphar recognized that the prosperity and the blessing in his life was the result of Joseph's relationship with God. Verse 4 says, Joseph found favor in his sight and served him, and he made him, look, overseer of his house. And all that he had, he put under Joseph's authority. So, in a sense, the Lord promoted Joseph, Potiphar said, you know what, man, you're a great steward. He just transitions everything over to him. He says, I don't have to worry about anything. He put everything under Joseph's authority. This young man, God's raising him up, giving him responsibility. He's becoming a good steward. And so it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house, all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptians' house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. And thus he left all he had in Joseph's hand. Notice he did not know what he had except the bread that he had on his dinner table that night. I mean that's a nice that's a nice type of uh, stewardship to have taking care of your stuff. I don't have to worry about I don't worry about anything. The only thing I worry about is what's for dinner tonight. Joseph's got everything under control. Man, that is an employer's dream. That's a master's dream to have somebody with that kind of stewardship where you can say, you know what, I don't have to worry about anything. That person is such a good steward. They take such good care of things. I don't have to worry. That is fantastic to be able to have somebody like that who somebody can look at and say, you know what, they can oversee things. When I'm away, I don't have to worry about it. He takes care of everything. He's a good steward. And interesting to me that it even says here, notice, the Lord blessed, verse 5, the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And you know what? I think the Lord at times can bless maybe the place of our employment or can bless the area of our stewardship. And for, for the sake of who we are and the Lord being in our lives, he can bring blessing and prosperity to someone else. I love how it says the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. To me, I want to put it under the Lord blesses for Jesus' sake. And for Jesus' sake, being in our lives, the blessing of the Lord can be on things, whether it's in business, whether it's other areas of oversight, that for Jesus' sake, people should be able to say, wow, you know what, this Jesus thing, it makes my life better, not worse. This Jesus thing makes my life wonderful. Listen, I really have a firm conviction that as the body of Christ and as Christians, that we should be a blessing in our culture, not a burden. I I, I think that in the culture, we should... Bring a blessing to the culture, that, that our culture, I understand there, there, there's the, the, the antagonism toward the name of Jesus and what we stand for, but by the same token, I think that as believers, as we love the Lord and we're servant-hearted and we're good stewards and so forth, and the blessing of the Lord is on our life, that as we go out into our world, people should sense the blessing of the Lord Coming from our life and who we are, our character and the way that we handle our affairs and do things, where we're not a burden on society, but that we're a blessing on society. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And people would look at Christians as they're not, oh, they're the people are always trying to get something, instead of no, those people are always trying to give something. They always seem to want to give and be a blessing. And that, I think, is the heart that the Lord ultimately wants to flow out of us in our world to be able to see that. So here's the Lord. He's put Joseph into this spot. And what's he doing? He's preparing Joseph, right? He's developing character in the small sphere of Potiphar's house. What's Joseph learning? Stewardship. And he's learning it right there in the place where he's at. Because ultimately, he's going to do what? He's going to be right next to right-hand man next to Pharaoh overseeing the granaries of the entire empire of Egypt and the known world at that day. But how did he get prepared for it? In the small things. In the place of his employment, he was handling the little things. Jesus said he who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. If we're not faithful in the sphere where we're at, God says you won't be faithful in bigger things. Well, you know... When I get that big opportunity, then I'm going to really get serious. You know, once God advances me, then I'm going to I'm going to really be diehard then. And and sometimes we one and God says no no no. Right where you're at, with whatever responsibility and oversight and stewardship you have, be as faithful as possible in that. And God takes notice of that. And God says because if you can be faithful there and content being faithful in that, God says that, that is my assurance that that because see it 's a character thing it 's not an opportunity thing it 's a character thing stewardship is a character thing integrity is a character thing good oversight and responsibility and, and seriousness and, and th- that 's a character thing and whether it 's with a dollar or a million dollars or whether it 's with you know managing Three people or 3,000 people. It's a character thing. And God says if you have that character there and you care enough to be like that there, then if I put you here and I add this, this, and this, that same character will just flow forth and you'll be able to handle the bigger thing. And God's taking Joseph through all these things. He has no idea what God's preparing him for. And can I tell you this? Wherever you're at, whatever God's doing for your life, I promise you this – He is always, he's never doing anything, he is preparing you for the thing that's ahead. I don't know what it is for your life. I don't even know what it is for my life. I'm always trying to figure that out. But he's always preparing us for the thing ahead. So be a good steward where the Lord has you. God's developing Joseph, and we'll watch as the Lord is developing his character. He's preparing him for what's ahead. He's going to go through challenges and hard things, as he already has. But... All those hard things he goes through, none of them are harder than, and hear me as I say this, none of those are harder than being in a place of great responsibility and not having the character to handle it. That's worse. To go through difficulties and let God develop character so you're prepared to handle what one day you're going to handle, there's nothing as hard as not having the right character And then having responsibility and opportunity put upon you. And if you don't have the right character, it's going to crumble. And the whole house of cards is going to come falling in. And the tragedy is, usually, we're not just the one that suffers. Everybody else that we are interacting with, they get destroyed in the process. So you know what? Is God working in your life? Praise the Lord. He's doing it for you and everybody that he's affecting around you.